So I came in, loved the uh, office environment and uh, went to the operating room. And the first person he cut open, I passed out on the floor. So <laughs> that was my wake up call to say, maybe this isn't the right path. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, I know my boss really wants me to use this assessment, but what does it actually tell me? Or maybe along those same lines, you're doing a bunch of different tests, isolated joint stuff, movement screens, maybe even collecting some data with tech. But when you step back and try to take in the big picture, you're not really sure what it's telling you. If you've ever felt like that, either now or in the past, you're probably like most of us, as well as today's guest. Dr. Jennifer Reiner Marcello has 20 years of experience in the sports performance industry, ranging from the private setting, collegiate, and professional teams. Over the last seven years, she has focused her efforts in baseball, including rehabilitation for the San Diego Padres and reconditioning for the Minnesota Twins. While at the Twins, she created and deployed the reconditioning program, which included establishing, developing, and executing a systematic approach for coordinating motion capture data, force plate and mound information, video breakdown, strength and conditioning assessments, orthopedic evaluations, movement assessments, and hitting and pitching coaches assessments to reduce injury, improve skill, and drive performance. Now, I realize that's a mouthful, but I promise we're going to take all that and make it incredibly practical as we try to find the intersection between assessments, movement, and sports science in baseball. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, like I alluded to up top, I've had all sorts of different assessments that I've used over the years. I've done the isolated table testing. I've done the bigger, gross movement screens. And of course, we're making a bigger push these days to collect data and get objective numbers as to how our athletes are moving. But I kept coming up with a lot of the same questions that I asked Jen today. First off, how do you increase buy-in with your athletes? How do you take all this information, put it through a filter, and really dial in your program design process? And last but not least, how do you step back and see the big rocks in your assessment process without getting overwhelmed with the massive amount of information you can pull in? So if you're in the baseball space, I know you're going to love this episode. And even if you're not, I think, think Jen's thoughts and ideas will help guide you into tweaking and refining your own assessment process regardless of what space you're in. Jen is so much fun to talk to, and I think she's got a great way of taking complex information or thought processes and making it super easy to understand. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what's new in my neck of the woods, starting with kiddo sports. For Cade, the fall sports season is already kind of wrapping up, which is hard to believe. He is playing fall baseball, and he's really hit the ball well this year. Feel like he's continued to get better and better, especially as they introduce kids pitching into the equation. Still needs some work in the field, but we're working on that regularly, and I'm excited to see, you know, with a little bit of off-season work, where he is at next spring. So he's about done. Kendall is still 
plugging along with soccer. Again, I can see the improvements in her effort and her performance week over week. Still some things we're working on there as well. If I can get this girl to kick the ball with her laces, I will be super thrilled. But that's kind of where they're at there. Believe it or not, this weekend is Cade's birthday. I mean, as I write this, it's hard to believe this guy is going to be nine years old this year. So super excited for him in the sense that he's got a baseball game. He's got a couple birthday parties. One of his friends has a party. He's got a party. Just all kinds of good stuff. He's very excited. I mean, obviously when you're, you know, anything under like 20, maybe even 21, you're pretty excited for your birthday, but especially when you're nine. So excited for him and excited to hang out with him this weekend far as coaching goes really starting to tail off which is you know bittersweet but i'm down to four guys and after this week i'm down to two after next week i'm down to one so things are really starting to thin out there i may have one guy that continues on for a couple more months as he's he's rehabbing some stuff but weird you know to think that it's just such a grind in in a positive way like it's a really fun grind for me i don't mind it but Man, you just go so hard from like March or April into, you know, now mid-October. So to go from that into where I've only got a handful of people is going to be a little bit strange. But I've got so much stuff that I want to work on, right? So, you know, I've got like multiple Con Ed courses that I'm doing. I'm going through the Natera ISO course. I'm going through the Exerfly flywheel course, Kanga Tech is going through or they're actually offering these free webinars on different injuries and how they're using their technology to rehab athletes so i've got all kinds of con ed i've got a bunch of projects writing podcast work that i want to get done uh, in the ensuing weeks and months so i'm excited to just have a little extra free time to use that time to dive into some of my creative outlets so as much as i love coaching If I can put that on the back burner just for a little bit, because there's other areas that I want to work on and get better at, so that next March, next April, when everybody starts coming back, we're going to hit the ground running, and I feel like it's going to be at a whole nother level. And that's what gets me excited about this. It's like, hey, we had a really good offseason this year. I feel like all the guys, all the girls are in a really good spot, but how can we continue to grow and evolve the programs that we offer at IFAST? So definitely, definitely pumped for that. And then, man, a week from today, we are going to be on a plane heading to beautiful Denver, Colorado for a week. So fall break is is nearly here. And I think the big thing for us was when you look back over the last couple of years, obviously we live in Indiana, which is not the most exciting place in the world. But we spent a lot of time in Florida, whether it was spring break, fall break, winter break. So really just trying to show our kids that there's more to the great U.S. of A. than just Indiana and Florida and just showing them the West, showing them mountains, uh, you know, getting out, being active, hiking, moving around a whole bunch over fall break. So definitely, definitely looking forward to that. And yeah, that's really what's new in my neck of the woods. So, you know, like I always say, things are great here. I hope you are doing well. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with Jen Reiner Marcello. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. 
My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really, really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Is that the is that the, the, the <laughs> Yes, video? yes. Um, so for sure, this is kind of cool. So appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, so a little bit about myself. I, I operate um, in the, the rehab, reconditioning kind of performance space. Love to span all three. Um, work with really all sports, but have had probably in the last seven, eight years, a, uh, an affinity and, and concentration within the baseball world. So I work with professional teams um, in consulting roles now, collegiate uh, teams as well, in addition to players that Kind of help help have come and I help them throughout the year um, during breaks and also during um, uh, the postseason as well. I love it. I love it. And talk to me. What originally got you into physical preparation? Like, how did you get started in this whole world? I think it really started um, back when I was a gymnast. Um, okay. You know, that was kind of my sport growing up, and you pay a lot of attention to form obviously and training is a big piece of that especially when you get to the higher competitive levels and i think that was really what spawned this interest of huh you can actually do this for a living um and led me down that path i love it i love it and then before we dive in because i got a ton of questions i want to cover i love getting everybody's career path so obviously now you're in the pro baseball world you've been in pro baseball for a while now but you didn't start there so would you mind kind yeah. of giving us like your career journey because you've got an interesting educational background too. So I'd love to hear kind of where you started education wise and kind of how you ended up where you're at today. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went to University of Florida and um, originally thought, man, I'd love to be an orthopedic surgeon. So that was the original path was medical, you know, let's go the medical school route and and pick a, a major that was you know in line with that. Uh, ended up shadowing. I had ankle reconstruction and the ortho was great and said, Hey, if you want to come in and shadow me and, and see what, what I do, you know, feel free. So I came in, loved the uh, office environment and uh, went to the operating room. And the first person he cut open, I passed out on the floor. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my wake up call to say, maybe this isn't the right path. Um, but I still, I, I loved the movement piece. I knew there was a medical piece that I kind of wanted to fulfill as well. And so I did a, a bachelor's degree in exercise and, and sports science. And when I finished, it was very much geared towards strength and conditioning, but there was that medical piece that I wanted more of. And I came out um, 
probably with more of a mindset in line with physical therapy. But at the time, this was when chiropractors had direct access to patients. They didn't yeah. need a referral from the MD. They had a broader scope, could order MRIs, read x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. So I chose chiropractic school, but with a mindset of a PT, you can probably imagine how well that went. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it did give me a very different perspective, at least coming out of school. Um, and it made me, uh, as soon as I graduated, I was like, I just want to learn more from other people and other disciplines. And so my first gig was actually University of California, San Diego, working with all of their sports. I was, it was a, a school that was kind of thinking outside the box, like who hires a team chiropractor in 2006 at a right. college. It just, what doesn't really happen, but thankfully there were some people that were just outside the box thinkers. And so I was exposed very early on in my career to what do athletic trainers learn? What do they think? What does the physical therapist think? How does the strength and conditioning coordinate with this? So it was an excellent way of, of learning from so many disciplines for six, seven years, um, which then kind of launched me into my next role, which was more in the private sector. <clears throat> so um, Todd Durkin, who owns Fitness Quest 10 out in San Diego, uh, kind of heard of my name and was like, man, I wonder if she could pair up with our current physical therapy team to help provide the rehab here. Mm. So it ended up working out, teamed up with the physical therapist there. Um, we ended up opening five locations around San Diego and really kind of honed in on the private sector. Um, we ended up getting a lot of the Padres coming in. So we built, built this kind of, you know, um, relationship with them. And then they ended up bringing us into um, the Padres organi organization to actually provide their PT. Oh, wow. So this was kind of like where the love of, of baseball came around. Um, so yeah, I dove, started diving into to more of the, the baseball specific side of things. Um, took a little break to have my first little one. Yeah. And once she kind of got to a, a, an age where I felt like I could kind of go back and, and get, give some time back to the work side of things, um, we moved to Florida and I ended up taking a role with the Minnesota Twins originally as their um, uh, strength and conditioning for the rehab people. Okay. So brought me back to the strength and conditioning side, which was kind of right. fun. I was like, all right, right here we go. Like busting out the books back from school and, and diving in. Um, but I think what was so interesting about that role is it, it morphed into what I considered reconditioning. And I pitched this to the higher ups to say like, here's this role called reconditioning, kind of bridges the gap between rehab and SNC, which is kind of what I'm already doing. Right. But then there's this other piece where we had skill coaches and the pitching coaches would come in and say, hey, you know, we've been trying to cue this guy into doing this or using this drill and it's just not working. Is there something that you see from your lens? So usually the sports medicine side was too busy to do another evaluation. SNC had their own stuff going on. So it landed on my lap to kind of take deeper dives into these healthy players to understand why they couldn't execute whatever sort of move. So we, we deemed it reconditioning, even though it was applied to the healthy and the injured. Um, and it worked out so well that the second year or the third year, they ended up allowing me to hire someone to fill that role oh, wow. um, to help me out. Yeah. So we ended up having two people in the reconditioning space. Um, and that's what I you know, ended up doing with the twins and then decided to leave this this next year um, or this year, actually, and do more of a consulting role. But the same thing with other teams. Yeah. So I love it. I love it. OK, so like I said, tons of questions that I want to ask you and just lots of things that I want to chat about. But Let's start with some basic stuff that probably has a pretty big answer on your end. So for starters, what I would love to hear about is your assessment process. Because like you said, you've been influenced by a lot of different areas. So like just nuts and bolts, what does the assessment process look like when somebody comes to you? Yeah, I said that there's three main buckets. One is 
let's do our global tests, you know, the standing rotations and the squats and what everybody looks at. Um, I tend to uh, do videos and pictures of all of it because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot you can miss just looking at it once. Agreed. Uh, there's things that, you know, details, um, the devil is in the details, I think, often with regard to how they're doing a certain motion. Um, you know, what is their strategy to get around something maybe they don't have? So one is kind of the big bucket of global tests that are standing. Then obviously the table tests. And I will say that, uh, gosh, it used to take me an hour to do table tests. I had so many, not realizing that they were all um, kind of duplicates upon yes. one another. Um, so I've really kind of trimmed the fat down on that. And I'd say maybe, you know, 20 to 30 minutes on some table things. And then the last piece, which I think has really made a huge difference in the way I evaluate and treat is if it's a player that's either had an injury or maybe performance has declined, I'll ask for a video of send me a video when you're pitching at your best and then mm. send me your most recent video. And I want to see what what's changed. Right. Or send me your most recent video before you had this injury. I want to compare that to when you were moving well or when you thought you were moving well and performing well and being able to identify the differences and then matching that up with the video that you take for your standing tests, squats, et cetera, and the table test can often give you a really good picture as to what was lost or what's happening that has created the problem. Mm. So those are kind of like three main buckets. Mm. I really like that. I don't know if I've, I mean, it's one of those like, duh, kind of, kind of <laughs> moments, you know, but like, I really like that idea of, no, like show me what you did or how you looked when you were playing your highest level. And then right. to be able to compare that. So you've got like this baseline, really yeah. it's not a baseline. It's like a peak efficiency versus where they're at now. You could probably right. draw a lot of good conclusions from that, I would assume. 100%, 100%. I mean, things that they're not even aware of, like, you know, look look how much flexion you're missing in, in as you follow through on this pitch versus where you were. And yeah. they don't even appreciate those things. Right. Right. Or um, look at the change in your load. Look how much more, you know, access to internal rotation you have on this back leg because of this. And now do you see how you're doing that? Yes. Right. And so they start to connect the dots, too, because now you're speaking their language. Yeah. You know, like a, sure. oftentimes a toe touch and a squat kind of. Yeah, whatever. Um, but when you speak their language of their sport and what they were doing and what they are doing, and then you can connect the dots to your standing global tests, mm -hmm. like then, then you've got their attention. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that, that, you know, I'm sure is that a lot of times when these things are starting to deteriorate on their end, it's a very gradual process. So they may not have this right. sense of, oh, it just feels off. But then, like you said, if you can compare video and then you can show different table tests and say, you know, this is where you were. This is where you're at right. now. Again, it's like, oh, wow. Now I get it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. I love it. So that I I started doing that probably three years ago. Um, obviously, when you work in baseball, there's no shortage of video. <laughs> right, sure. So, you know, so it's it's easy to obtain that stuff and and to get, even get it from all different angles, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so one thing I'm curious about is that I think movement-based assessments are very commonplace now. People are used to squatting, hinging, lunging, whatever kind of global mm -hmm. assessments. But there is still some people that don't necessarily buy into table tests or the isolated stuff. So I'm curious, do you ever get any blowback from that? Or is it kind of more universally accepted in baseball versus maybe in other sports? Yeah, no, great question. I think 
You know, when you're dealing on the medical side, everyone comes in with this foundational way of measuring range of motion, right? Hip flexion, yep. hip IRs, those are all pretty standard. But I will say, um, you know, the way that, and I have to give a huge shout out to Bill Hartman, obviously your partner, yep. um, the way that he looks at movement and and goes through table tests is is very different. And yep. most certainly it raises some eyebrows when you tell someone your shoulder flexion is actually 40 degrees, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and they're getting 160 on the table. It's like, uh, that's not a, just an error in measurement. Like, what are you, what are you looking at that's differently? Right. That's different. Um, so I think that raises a lot of eyebrows. But what I will say is looking at those table tests in a different light, meaning you're not just measuring a ball and socket. You're not just measuring the femur on the acetabulum you are looking at the entire system, right? How yep. the ilium is moving relative to the femur, how the sacrum is moving relative to the ilium, how the spine is moving, right? Yep. And when you can appreciate those things and you have a mental image of what is and isn't working, um, I think your, your um, manual techniques become much more specific. Your exercises are much more targeted. And as a result, your results are that much, um, you know, you get to the answer faster. You're getting the results that people aren't getting. Yeah. And then people start to ask you, so what was that test that you were doing? <laughs> and so rather than, right, rather than trying to explain your way through something, they're coming to you with questions and they're actually curious of what were you actually looking at there? Right. So. Right. Okay. So this leads to kind of a good follow-up, I think. What are some of the issues that you see now, like in retrospect, when it comes to table tests, right? Is it just that people are looking at each like little segment in isolation versus globally or, you know, what are we doing wrong there? How can we get better with our table tests? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, I was under the impression that 60-40, right? That's right. the gold standard. Everyone's got 60 ER and everyone's got 40 IR and that's what everyone should be, you know, trying to, to achieve. Right. Um, and wow, like talk, talk about flipping me on my head to say like, hey, <laughs> There are these different archetypes, which then set the body up for being biased toward different ranges. So that in and of itself was huge to know that, hey, if I have a wide, I'm probably not going to get 60 degrees of ER, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that was a big piece. I think understanding that table tests are dirty at the end of the day. People slide, people roll, the um, the cushion of the table, yeah. right, can all give you different, different feedback. Um, and that's something that's not at least brought to your attention during school as well. Yeah. Right. Um, and then just understanding, like, you know, we've all seen an anterior pelvic orientation before, but to understand what that means on a table, right? When you lay that person down and they're technically kind of still being pulled in that position, now you're not just measuring a hip IRER, right? You are measuring the orientation of that pelvis that's come forward. So what does that actually look like? Well, yep. it's going to magnify your IR and it's going to it's going to decrease your ERs. Um, and so those sorts of just tidbits of information have been gold. Yeah. I remember when Bill first started doing a lot of this stuff. I, I'm thinking it was at least six or seven years ago where he really started to dive into this. And we had this basketball player come in with like the most notorious anterior orientation of all time. Right. And he puts him on the table and I'm like, man, look at this guy. He's got amazing hip IR. And he just looks at me. He's like, yeah, that's fake. <laughs> you know how he is. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, that's fake. Um, but yeah, it just yeah. totally shifts your viewpoint of kind of the way you see movement and what is good movement or bad movement and strategies that people use to cheat or find ways to get the job done, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the other piece too, is when you can link all of these things together, like 
okay, I see on his um, left rotation that he's dumping the pelvis forward to try and get a little bit more, you know, internal rotation of the femur. Yep. Um, and it's creating that arch in the lower back. Okay, I'm also seeing that on the table. Oh, and guess what? By the way, his lead leg block, look what he's doing there. And so when you can piece all of those parts together of what their strategy is, and you see it play out in all of these different scenarios, it, you know, it, it, it allows you to narrow your um, intervention so that you're much more targeted and can maybe get it on the first try as far as what yeah. you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I think that's something we're all shooting for, right? We've all had our days of the shotgun approach. And I think the longer oh, right. you do this, the more the more you want to be a sniper, right? And you want to be hyper-specific. Yes. So I love it. I love it. Okay. So kind of as a follow-up to that, I know that beyond the standard table tests and movement tests, like you alluded to, you also dive into the sports-specific movement and the sports science side. So mm -hmm. I would love to hear, you know, what you're looking at from those respective areas as well. Yeah. So I think what was challenging about this year was, you know, if I'm not affiliated with a team, I don't have direct access to a lot of the tech that they're pulling data from. Yeah. Right. So there's there's certain things that I would key in on. Um, if I'm watching a player, a major league player pitch live on TV, I can watch toe drags. Mm -hmm. Right. You can see what's happening as far as that back leg curve as it's going through the dirt to tell you where someone's center of mass is and maybe what motions they do and do not have available. Mm. So using like little little things like that, um, as far as um, looking at we talked about kind of breaking down the swing and breaking down um, the video, I think one of the biggest eye opener um, aspects to me was understanding that at the end of the day, it's all gait, or as Bill would say, propulsion, yeah. right? Yep. You're moving across the ground. So if you can understand what early gait, middle and late is, and you understand the relationship of each bone and where it is in space, then you understand everything in yeah. terms of hitting, pitching, running, change of mechanics, swimming for that matter, right? If you understand right. the shapes, if you understand the shapes that they have to make and get into, and then you break it down into those three phases, um, it really gives you a good idea of how they need to move and what they don't have available. Yes. And I think um, from a sports science um, side of things as well, the motion capture data that they're able to get through live, you know, as they're pitching. So different systems, Hawkeye, Simi, these are all ways of, um, you know, tons of cameras that surround the stadium that break down movement into biomechanical data to tell you where they are in space. Um, that's also very helpful. Um, and sure. that was what, you know, we had used with the twins to also piece together from the sports science side. Um, okay, here's what I'm seeing on my general movements. I am seeing this on the table. Their compensatory strategy is to do this. Is that what they're doing from motion capture standpoint? Yes, it is. Okay. So I know if I give them access to this motion, it should take away that compensatory strategy. And then we see it change on this biomechanical motion capture data. So linking those things together is is a lot of fun when yeah. you have access to that information. Otherwise, you have to get kind of crafty. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And I think this would be helpful for those of us that are unfamiliar, like me, like I'm not in pro baseball. I would love it if you could describe some of the tech that, you know, when you're with the Twins or with your when you're yeah. with a major league club that you have access to that's maybe more baseball specific or maybe just to be more clear, what are the tools sure. you're using and what information yeah. are they giving you? 100%. Yeah. So I think a couple of things that are really interesting, um, you know, Rap Soto is something that'll give you um, the, the movement of the ball, the spin rate, right? That's occurring yep. on the ball. 
And so if I'm working with a player, at least currently, they have access to that information. And I can say, you know, let's say, um, let's say they're a player that has a fantastic curveball. Yep. And the spin rate on a curveball matters. It can certainly play into the movement, right, of the ball. Yeah. And if if they tell me from a performance side of things, you know what, I've really kind of lost movement on that curveball. I don't know what it is. That tells me, okay, let's look at spin rate. Has your spin rate gone down on that curveball? And if you think about what what um, contributes to spin rate, if I have a thorax that's able to turn, if I have a scapula that's able to rotate, if I have a humerus that can turn, I have a proximal and distal radial ulnar joint that can turn and a hand that can turn. I have all of these additive rotational turns mm -hmm. that are adding to right the spin rate of the ball. Yeah. And so if those relative motions are lost and now that arm is behaving more like one unit versus several segments, that can decrease the spin rate on the ball. So that can give me a clue of, hey, I need to look at all of these different segments to see what's moving and what's not. And if I can restore some of those relative motions, does that now feed back into this um, this curveball and him actually increase, increase the spin rate and therefore increase in the movement on the ball? Yeah. So that might be one thing to look at. Um, another one that I think is really interesting is uh, are the force plate mounds. And so force plate mounds have three, excuse me, three different directions. So you have an, a... a um, a X axis, which is typically, you know, vertical. Yeah. Then you have a Y axis, which is basically the pitcher toward home. Yeah. And then you have a Z axis, which is like first, first to, third. to third. Yeah. Yeah. And so as they're delivering the baseball, you would think like, okay, the, the, the fastest way from point A to point B is a straight line. Right. Sure. And so if I'm seeing something where we're getting a lot of the Z, the first to third sort of movement, that's telling me that he's again, creating some sort of orientation um, to deliver the baseball toward home. And yeah. it allows me to look at, okay, I'm missing some relative motion on that back hip that he cannot create an effective load. Therefore, he's kind of getting outside his base of support and it's sending him, you know, towards third and right. keeping, right, like not being able to open the pelvis. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's a great um, kind of KPI to say, okay, if I can get this motion to happen on this back leg and we're able to then put it into a drill and it, it to the eye, it looks good, but then we put them on the force plate mound and now we're seeing that there's less of that first to third, you know, axis movement, yep. then we know that we're on the right track. That's So I think awesome. force plate mounds are, are super interesting. Yeah. Okay. So how real time are you doing this? Now I'm really interested because like, I mean, are you literally like trying an intervention and then taking them out there and testing this stuff or... You know, is it that like, or a yeah. couple of weeks, like how often are you doing this? Yeah. So I think, you know, easy things to look at, obviously are video. Um, and that's going to be, you know, you can see a difference, I think right away. And I never yeah. thought that, okay, if I make, if I do an intervention, I'm going to see it that quickly, but it happens, especially in the professional side. Um, you know, I think obviously if you're dealing with more youth sports, there's some skill side that still has to be developed For there, sure. you know, um, to, to kind of see some of these changes. Um, but um, in a perfect world, yes, I'd love to do a quick intervention and then put them right back on the force plate. But at least when we are, you know, you have you have data scientists that are there capturing the data. And then maybe by the time they are available to run that again, it's a week or two, sure. you know. Um, but at least, you know, I think giving myself a week or two weeks to try and get that change to happen was kind of like the sweet spot to see an appreciable difference. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it would be like, OK, let's get them back on the force plate mount or let's get them on um uh, you know, our, our motion capture data um, in, in two weeks to see if we've made that that change. 
Yeah. Well, and the cool thing, too, is, like, you might see that change that quickly, but sometimes, you know, it takes a while for it to stabilize. You need a couple more interventions, or you need to introduce some different kind of layers to that stimuli to make it stick a little bit better, which is, you know, like, this is the thing that people, oh, yeah, that one time that you made a change. Yeah, you know, you can pick at that, but, you know. (laughs) You can make a change that quick, but you're right. Sometimes it does take a little bit longer for, for it to stick from a movement perspective, from a re- movement skill retraining perspective. But yeah, yes. I mean, you've seen it in uh, some of the posts that you put up on social media lately too. Like you can see changes pretty fast if you're doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think to your point, like it, sometimes it's a very complex situation. It's like, okay, I got to get a foot and ankle to to give me some more dorsiflexion. I got to get some motion to get some calcaneal version. Oh, and by the way, I also have to get some tibia to play into internal rotation as well. And I need yep. a, a hip, right? So there's there's many segments to piece together. Yes. And then being able to ramp up the exercise from th- something that's very basic, right, to something that's more advanced to now we're actually putting more rate of force development, that can certainly take a period of time to do. Yes. But then there's some instances where I had a, a, a pitcher who like his – his main, like his best pitch was a, was a changeup. And if you looked at his hand, sure enough, it was biased toward a ton of pronation, which makes them great at changeups. But at the same time, it was, it was pulling away from his okay slider and his slider became really crappy. Okay. Um, And sure enough, if you looked at his hand from kind of when we compared it earlier in the season, his hand was so pronated and stuck into more of this kind of IR position. Um, And so sure enough, it was stealing from his capability to get the hand more supinated for the slider. And so we did a quick just, you know, manual mobilization through the, the distal radial ulnar joint. Um, he had a bullpen that day and tested it out. And sure enough, it was back to what it was, you know, at its best. So awesome. those, you know, depending on the com- complexity of what you're dealing with, yeah, sometimes it's going to take a little bit to ramp that up. And sometimes it's, hey, they just needed to be able to access this with a hand and you got it. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? cool. That's cool. Okay, so talk to me here. You have just described table tests, movement tests sport-specific movement analysis, and sports science. So how do you take all that information, not get overwhelmed, and use it to help better your training decisions? Yeah, so, and thankfully, this is kind of how it's turned out. I'll let you know if it ever goes in opposite directions. (laughs) But um, I think what's so powerful about understanding the global tests are in front of you and linking that to your table tests that lays this foundation so you understand what they have available to them to what positions they can essentially get into then when you're looking at all the different data um the force plate data the um, motion captured data whatever you want to layer on top of that 99 percent of the time what they're showing you as far as their limitation is coming up in all the rest of their data. And it's so cool to see this crossover. It's all like all the arrows are pointing in the same direction. Every once in a while you get something that's like, huh, I don't know why, but we're going to figure that out. And then right. it makes you dive in to understand that a little bit more. Sure. Um, but thankfully, you know, I've at least from what I've <clears throat> dealt with over the last three years and having tech available, um, most of this all lines up based on those fundamental tests. Again, if you understand your gait, early, middle, and late, what are my shapes? What shape can't they make? Okay, they can't do this. What are some compensations? I'm probably going to see X, Y, and Z. What do we see in all this data? Oh, look, we see an X, Y, and Z. Perfect. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, it, it, it comes like down- a confirmation. Yeah, it, it comes down to having like a really comprehensive, well-thought-out model. You know, and I'm, I mm-hmm. mean, I sound like Bill now talking about the model, but... 
but it's true, <laughs> right? Like yeah. you, there has to be like this comprehensive overview of how movement should look that, like you said, the shapes and the positions you need to be able to get into or out of. And if you can't check those boxes, you know, it's probably right. either, maybe not now, but at some point it's going to at minimum detract from performance and potentially get you injured, right? Depending on right. the intensity, uh, just the volume of training, whatever the case may be. But the comprehensiveness right. of your model really sets the stage and it's the foundation and the backbone for all of the scientific, sports-specific, technological stuff you have access to. Well said. Well said. Yeah, I think once I, I really got a handle of Bill's model, and as you said, like those those principles, you know, the principles hold true, whether you're looking at it through motion capture, force plate information, all of these things. Yeah, I love it. So you have this really wide-ranging background. You know, we got all the areas that you've talked about professionally, doctor of chiropractic. I know you've got some acupuncture in there. So with all those tools in the toolbox, talk to me about your thought process about when you want to apply a certain intervention. Like, I'm really fascinated yeah. by that. Because again, us lowly personal trainers, right? We can, you know, do some breathing and resets. But you have a lot of tools. In the toolbox, right? Yeah. So like talk me through your thought process of when you're gonna go to a manual strategy or an adjustment versus acupuncture. Like what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so I think what's what's nice about having so many different tools is I could look at a problem and say, okay, I have five different options in terms of what's in my tool belt here. Yep. And I think one of the first things I ask a player or a patient that I'm working with is, hey, what have you tried in the past that you've really liked? Or what have you tried that you just really did not go well? Um, you kind of have a negative, mm -hmm. you know, thought process towards whatever sure. it might be. Um, and that often dictates it, right? It's like, I may be the best acupuncture dry needle person in the world, but if this person had several bad experiences, right, that plays into their psyche. And they're very much a part of the rehab process with me. And if they're not on board for what I'm doing, then it's probably not going to go very well. Yeah. So I need to take into account what has worked well in the past. What do they kind of look on favorably? Okay, of that, of those things, maybe there's three things at that point. Now, what do I choose? And sometimes I look at it and say, you know what? Like I could do this adjustment. It's not. I don't perform it very well. Maybe I go to a mulligan mobilization. That's that's I'm much better at in this area, right? Right. Um, or maybe there's a, a, a certain cupping technique that I've had like excellent results with, just based on the experience of this particular presentation. So I would say it's, you know, what is the patient comfortable with? What are they open to, to trying and being on board with? And then where in my skill set is, is like, is this a great move for me to try or do? Um, and or where have I had the most success um, in treating this specific, um, you know, in context, what I'm looking at here on the table? Yeah, it's interesting. You led with what do they like or what do they maybe not like? I'm reminded I was at the Sa Seattle Sounders Sports Science Seminar. This was probably 2014 or somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the, the lecturers was talking about the role of perception of like recovery yeah. modalities or treatments. Right. And he said, like, they have data where you can look at, hey, uh, the exact same massage therapist. One person loves massage, feels like it's beneficial, all this. So they get a massage and their recovery goes through the roof. Another one, for whatever reason, doesn't like massage, uh, you know, doesn't like their body, uh, you know, something along those lines, right? Sure. And they have the exact opposite, yeah. like their recovery tanks. So I think it's really right. valuable that you talk about perception and how people feel about the different modalities or treatments that you might perhaps use with them. 
Right. hundred percent. I think there, there's a big psychological piece um, into everything, right? I think that's what, why Bill has the purple room, right? Yes. Color, yes. <laughs> color, sound, right? All of these things that we kind of write off in our beginning stages of, of you know, learning and, and practicing. And then we kind of come around and say, huh, there is some, th- some truth and we're seeing more science and data to back that up. And so you have to take those things into consideration. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Jen Reiner Marcello one piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, um, it would absolutely be, do not undervalue what you do. Um, I think, I don't know if this is in, you know, I think female, it probably runs a little bit more rampant in females, but it can obviously be, be both. Um, but I just remember coming out of school and being like, gosh, I don't know anything. Like, I can't charge this for my service, you know, or... Right. I should just accept this as a salary because, gosh, I really don't know much, right? But then you fast forward to five years later, and I'm saying the same thing. And you fast forward <laughs> ten years later, and I'm saying the same thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, the, but there comes a point where it's like, you know, you put put a lot of time and effort and studying into your craft, um, and value what you do. And and most certainly, when you walk into an organization, they have their best interest in mind, right? They're not going to want to overinflate the number, right? right? Um, but at the same time, you have to be able to come to the table and say like, no, this, this is what I'm worth. And, um, you know, this is the value that I bring to your team. So I would absolutely tell myself, you know, day one, do not undervalue what you bring. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, and you make a great point too. Like we could beat ourselves up for probably our entire career of, man, I don't know enough, or I need to learn more about this. Like I'm 22 years in now and it's still like every day I'm like, you know, why didn't right. I think of that? Why? That's so simple. Why didn't I think of that? But yeah, you're yeah. never going to know it all. But yeah, you have to value what you bring mm-hmm. to an organization or to a facility, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. You got to value it because right. no, nobody's going to value you more than no. you do, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Very exactly. cool. Very cool. Okay. Last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer mm-hmm. can be as long or short as you like. Number one. I'm always intrigued by people such as yourself trying to find work-life balance. You've been in pro sports. You've got little people at home. So how do Mm -hmm. you go about balancing your time around these high-level athletes with being a wife and a mom? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, that was, you know, one of the reasons why I actually took took a step back out of professional sports. Mm. It is. It is so hard. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know how people do it. Um, and so I will say that kind of reorganizing things and saying, hey, you know what, I can still be involved in professional sports through a consulting role is a really great, was a great move for me because I got to say, hey, this is where I'm, when I'm available, we get these hours, you get these days, you know, and so I can organize myself better around um, being able to have time at home and, and being with the kiddos and Brandon. Um, and then the other piece too, I think this is just stemming from growing up is we always had dinner at night as a family together. Like mm, even yeah. though you know I had gymnastics or whatever sort of event going on, it was like we would shift dinner earlier or later just so that we could all sit down as a family. And I think that that stuck with me um, it, till this day. So breakfast and dinner is always together as a family. Like we have to sometimes shift things around just to make it happen. But making that a priority is is the big piece um, as well. And then in addition to like, you know, date nights with my husband, like making yep. sure once a week there's at least a time that we get to sit down for several hours, enjoy our time together. Um, but if you don't plan it, it doesn't happen. So, yeah. you know, just like you have a calendar that you're planning patients or clients and, and they're coming in, you have to do that for the family as well. Yeah, 
I love it. That's great advice. Okay, number two. Approximately how many times have you heard, good morning, happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. How many times have you heard that? So, so here, when I was diving into Bill's model, which was about two years ago, I had an hour and a half commute um, down and an hour and a half commute back oh my from gosh. the twins in Fort Myers. Wow. Yeah. So I had three hours of time, which is kind of nice as a mom. Like you're like, yeah. three hours of it to myself. You know, like I didn't actually mind the commute um, because of that one aspect of it. Um, and so honestly, for, for three hours a day, I would be listening to Bill's work. And, and it was because, gosh, it would take me eight times to understand one segment. And, yeah. and now I think I've gotten better because I'm down to like three. <laughs> but, <laughs> but still, I would listen to something over and over and over again. And like just I'd sit there in silence and think about how can I? OK, I, I know this representation. How do I apply this? I would dictate notes into my phone um of okay this is maybe somewhere i can go with this with this player based on kind of what i've learned now um but for a year it was six days a week three yeah. hours a day yeah of, of learning bill stuff i love it and then, i love it yeah yeah i love it and i i love that tip too of uh dictating notes into like the note app or something in your phone mm-hmm. i've been doing that right. all the time now like just podcasts and things it's so much easier i'm walking the dogs Okay, I'm going to pause this, right. go do that. Because yeah, otherwise it's like in your brain and by the time you get yes, home, it's if, yeah, it's gone. It's yep. gone. Yep. I love yep. it. Okay, you got it. number three, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned working in pro baseball? Yeah, so this one, and this one is, is still a struggle. Um, it, it's learning that the adaptation that that player shows you, and it could be specific to the position that they play, the adaptations that they've developed um, are can be favorable, mm-hmm. right, to, to the position or whatever they're doing. And so from a traditional standpoint, like coming out of school, I would have been like, oh, my goodness, like he's got this anterior orientation of his shoulder and, you know, the, it, it, his external rotation is this and that. But if his best pitch is his change up there's an orientation piece that happens to that, meaning it almost the relative motion between all of those segments, the more it kind of operates as one, the easier it is to kind of kill the spin rate or kill the velo on the ball, Mm. right? So understanding what that adaptation provides to that player, but then knowing when that adaptation has gone too far, right? It's it's actually created an injury. So now we have to understand, okay, this adaptation is what makes him great. I need to pull it back enough so that we make him healthy, but I can't take away his ability to perform this one specific pitch. And so just understanding and appreciating that certain adaptations are favorable um, was a huge kind of light bulb in dealing with professional sports. Yeah, I love it. Okay, last but not least, number four, what's next for Jen Reiner Marcello? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything. Yeah, I'm really, so I'm really excited about, so I came out of school um, in 2002 and force plates were really only something that were in biomechanics labs, you know, and now they're like ubiquitous in in weight rooms. So um, Matt Jordan um, has a really great course on just some of the basics of force plate information. So I'm diving into that right now. And and now that I have a kind of a lull between um, some off season um, stuff, starting with baseball, um, I just want to understand a little bit more on on the force plate side of things. So that'll be one. Um, we're taking a nice vacation to Hawaii. I actually grew up on Oahu. 
Oh, and nice. so we're flying, yeah, we're flying the whole family um, to Oahu um, in, in November for just a nice kind of 10, 10, 11 day getaway. So that's kind of immediate future what's going on. Good yeah. for you. Good for you. And yeah, I had Matt on, uh, it's probably been a year, year and a half ago now. Loved it. All right. And I'm with you. I'm going to take that course because we just ordered uh, a pair of force plates for the gym. So nice. we're getting into that as well. I'm looking forward to your Hawkins dynamic. Yes, yeah, I yes. thought you were having Hawkins dynamic. That would be great. Yeah, yeah very excited. Looking forward to that. Very excited. So, Jen, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great catching up with you today. Where can my listeners find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, so Twitter um, handle and Instagram are the same. It's Dr. J. Reiner, R-E-I-N-E-R. Um, and Facebook as well. Um, yeah, so I tend to just put thought-provoking pictures up there. Let's yes. just put it that way. Um, of just saying, like, here are the changes that you can you can actually make. Um, they are, these are some of the, you know, um, kind of thoughts behind it. Um, so, yeah, so that's probably the best place to kind of see what I'm doing and keep in touch. Yeah, well, I will say this, too. I really enjoy the fact that you're putting stuff out there more. I don't know if this is new or maybe I'm it just is, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe the algorithm is just feeding it to me. Uh, but yeah. I love the stuff that you're putting out there because I feel like there is a, a lot of just pure regurgitation just uh -huh. out there in social media. So I yeah. love the fact that you're taking concepts and then putting your own spin on it or showing how it applies to your sport. Definitely love what you're doing. So please keep it up. Well, I, it's funny because I, as I said earlier, I, I take so many photos of, you know, just posture and, and, and movements right out of the get go. And to keep me honest, right? Yeah. Am I making this change? And so I was looking through back, you know, through all my pictures. And I'm like, man, there's some really good pictures in here. I should start using this more. Yeah. So that's what you're seeing is I'm just kind of putting more things out there to say like, huh, this, this was pretty cool. Check it out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, keep up the good work. And again, Jen, thank you so much for coming on. This was really great. 100%. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Jen Reiner Marcello. Really hope you enjoyed it. I had a ton of fun talking to her. Obviously, she is very knowledgeable in the ways of IFAS. She's studied under Bill Hartman. You know, she's just such a great mind in the sense that she's trying to take all of these different things, right? That I think for a long period of time, table tests, movement based tests, force plate data you know, motion capture analysis and, and, and hitting and pitching breakdowns, all this stuff has been very siloed. And to have people like her that are trying to go in, take all that information, all that data, pull it together, and then start to have these really good conversations about, okay, here's how this impacts this, which is impacting this. So you can really tie it all together and help the athlete understand how maybe some of those table tests or those mov movement screens are impacting their ability to play their sport. So really enjoyed it. I had a ton of fun talking with Jen and I hope you enjoyed it and got some things out of it as well. Now, before I let you go, I got a small favor to ask. If you are not already subscribed to the show, please do that right now today. It'll take two seconds out of your day and you'll know each and every week when a new episode drops. So if you want to subscribe, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.